it's about transformational relationship. And so I'm always assuming, and the ecology that we're in of, you know, intersectional justice, like housing and immigration and indigenous rights and creation and, you know, all of these, these pieces that we're moving around all the time are only able to move forward because we are changing the nature of our relationships with individuals and with institutions uh, and with the individuals inside those institutions in particular. And so my hope is that we'll all be moving pieces and parts of those relationships around and transforming and changing and hopefully healing them. From Portland, Oregon, I'm Joshua Kingsley. This is Practice Makes Perfect, exposing clergy stories of faith and action. Julia Nielsen is co-pastor, along with Andy Goble, of Portsmouth Union Church. In the course of being a pastor with a background in social work, Julia has become a lead housing developer among faith communities, helping marshal over $3 million for an affordable housing project on her church's property. Her work, the work of Portsmouth Union Church, and others in Portland will potentially reshape the affordable housing landscape. I started this conversation asking her about the less public side of her spirituality, sitting meditation. Well, that's the power of sitting for me. And it's something that when I started sitting regularly and kind of took the leap into Vipassana meditation in 2013, I don't think I understood or could have been forewarned of, which is Mm -hmm. that um, you will gain insight if you show up, but you will not gain insight because you showed up. And there's no guarantee that when you sit, you will find something new, but you will definitely not find something new if you do not sit. And it's hard because it means that tens of thousands of hours into meditation, for those of us who get that far, um, you realize that there are only moments of brilliance and you're not even waiting for them because to wait for them or to want them is actually counter to what meditation is. Like you're not, the whole purpose of sitting is to learn how to not crave or avoid what is happening. And if you're craving this moment of illiteracy or sense of oneness with everything, then you're actually walking away from it and its possibility And if you're trying to avoid the pain in your leg or the pain in your heart or the pain in the world, you're actually approaching it and and adding to it instead. And so uh, when I sit down, which is a hard practice, just the showing up piece is hard. When I sit down, I, I often ask, what's the point? And I often am reminded just by the many hours of practice I have what you're doing has no point and there may not be a point to this. And yet I have seen, I will call it insane uh, revelation in those moments where in fact, um, like what you're describing with just looking up and saying, wow, the world that I'm observing right now doesn't have labels on it. And I don't know how to put labels on it. 
you, you show up and it just everything seems different and seems more unified. And when those moments come, all you can be is grateful, but you can't expect them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that I, that resonates with me. Hmm. You mentioned that you're you're doing some organizing for Levin in addition to pastoring at your own church. I know that some people might hear that, and that might kind of like boggle the mind a little bit. Uh, not everybody works you know not uh, you might be the only person i know of actually that pastors a church of one denomination and then also works part-time for a church of another denomination um can you just talk a little bit like can you explain it explain it to somebody uh just now coming out of like princeton divinity um why would you do something like that i would ask who's still going to seminary these days (laughs) <laughs> then <laughs> what do you want to be a VCR salesman? Cause that's what we're preparing <laughs> for. Um, it's the same level of, of preparation for the real world at this point. I have a lot of respect for seminary education actually, but Oh man. Um, the question being, you know, what is that like to do that work the way that I do it? I mean, I don't see it as separate. My, I've always been a bivocational person, which means for me, loving to spend significant formal time in a faith community as a leader. And alongside that, having another gig that is feeding my soul, but also drawing out, bridging into the community in a way that an individual faith community might not be able to do on its own. And for me, that's looked like being a nonprofit executive. It's looked like being in the domestic violence movement. It's looked like building community development corporations. And right now it, it looks like community organizing with Levin community and through Salt and Light Lutheran. And uh, there's a couple of reasons I think that's a really powerful way to live. And it is powerful for me. One is just about my personality, which is that I, I hate to be controlled. And I love to have choices. And when you have multiple gigs like that, um, the reality is there's a lot of freedom because nobody owns you full time. Right. I mean, there could be the argument like you can't serve two masters. But what I find out is the masters don't necessarily like talk to one another all the time. And (laughs) and because of the faith communities I find myself in over the course of my career, at least have found myself in. Um, I tend to get placed with these amazing groups of people who are just like, we want our leadership, we want our our clergy to be in the world on our behalf and to bring things into us that we otherwise wouldn't find for ourselves. And I think community organizing in particular in another denomination and interfaith, because our work with the Land and Housing Coalition is truly interfaith and truly ecumenical. puts oxygen in the blood of everything in a new and exciting way so that when we're not stuck in our particular institutions, which for me is the United Methodist Church and Disciples of Christ, because we're a union church uh, that has both traditions underneath and around us, um, 
for me, it means like, I'm not just stuck in this United Methodist tunnel vision where the only people I talk to are Methodist and the only thinking and theology I'm doing is Wesleyan. Instead, I get to be like in these various settings that much more fit not only who my people are, because we're all interacting with each other all the time across spaces and beliefs and structures. So why do we pretend that that's not how church is supposed to be? Uh, but also for myself, because I get a ton of inspiration and energy from other ways of being that aren't the ones I was trained in formally. I didn't grow up in my tradition. I didn't grow up Christian. So being in more and being exposed to more and partnering in those ways and hearing new language all the time just makes me feel freer. So the last time you and I talked on the phone, I had heard that um, Andy, your co-pastor, slash friend, um, partner in crime, had to travel back to Chicago or somewhere somewhere east of here for on some family business, and you were picking up some slack down at Portsmouth Union. How are you just doing with, you know, at that point there was a houseless shelter, there, you guys were sheltering people, and then the regular church stuff on top of that. So what are, what all, plus you're doing some stuff with Levin, what all are you balancing right now and how are you doing that? The balance is a tentative one. I don't know if I would use the word balance right now. Um, yeah, Andy has been, as we say in our place, deployed into um, full-time work, building the emergency services for houseless folks in North Portland alongside Do Good Multnomah. And so uh, our wonderful team, which is half me and half him sharing all of the responsibilities of our faith community at Portsmouth Union, uh, became much more the weight that I'm carrying while he's off making sure that our houseless neighbors have a safe place to be, especially during this, uh, this pandemic. And in the midst of that, uh, the normal life of the church has to continue on top of all of the things that come with pandemic, uh, which has been beautiful and also incredibly difficult. The pastoral challenges there are, as you can imagine, very big. But then I also organized with the Levin Land and Housing uh, Coalition for our faith communities that are interested in building affordable housing. And it is an intense process to learn what it means to organize relationally in this new way. And so uh, we're having, we're working the organizing cycle and we're in this season of house meetings and house meetings over zoom are their own animal. And for somebody who loves community organizing and gets a lot of, energy from it uh it's just a different way to interact with folks that is you know powerful but also fraught i mean there is just something beautiful that happens when people are together and face to face and one on one in incarnated ways with their bodies and 
when our bodies can't be together, it just changes the name of the game. It changes the structure. And so that's really, that's really been difficult uh, because my entire identity is formed around gathering people in large and small groups. And so yeah. it's, a, it's a different practice now. And I come out of it at the end of the day feeling much differently than I used to before all of this, almost 50 days in. A friend of mine said to me uh, this week as we were navigating, like, what's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to us as a community, a larger community across the world, but our individual ones as well? Um, and, and he said to me, you know, even Jesus only went to the desert for 40 days. Yeah. Said, yeah, we're way past 40. Um, good and, reminder. Yeah. If you're starting to feel the breakdown, and I did start to feel the breakdown uh, about 45 days in, I hit a wall. Um, if you're starting to feel the breakdown, it may be because you're not actually Jesus. Um, even Jesus said, enough is enough. And so totally. I'm, I'm definitely there. <laughs> Um, speaking of that just to kind of keep going with uh, with Julia and the different ways the different lenses you're able to put on you know you and I have talked before about uh, Vipassana meditation yeah am I saying that right Vipassana Vipassana, thank you. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter. Um, oh, exactly. As 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 somebody as somebody who practices that, I would expect them to say. Um, <laughs> so you know, as I'm kind of thinking about y you and you're able to to put on you know both the like United Methodists or and or Disciples of Christ faith leader hat, take that off, put on the non Christian hat, and kind of roll in that world. Um, and then put on this other hat, uh, Vipassana hat, where, you know, I imagine, at least in theory, everything kind of falls away. All of that stuff goes away at some point. Um, so you're, I, I guess, hatless. <clears throat> What's that like? And how does that then tie back into when you're moving in these other worlds? It's such a personal practice, meditation, and I think especially Vipassana meditation, which is about gaining insight into yourself and uh, your relationships with others through body sensation and non-reactivity, um, that I almost have a hard time sharing about it in Christian settings because there is no comparable practice that I have been taught in the church, not in a, an extended and deep way. I think co contemplative prayer may approach it, but it hasn't for me. Um, in fact, I don't really understand prayer most days, and I find that um, the teachings I've received, both formally as a clergy person and as just a normal lay Christian before that, have been entirely insufficient to the needs of my life and to the needs of the world. I find them useful, but insufficient, necessary, but not sufficient, if you will. Um, and so I have, I have a struggle sharing about meditation and the practice of it in any of the Christian settings I'm in, 
even though I do practice it daily and uh, when I'm doing well with some pretty intense devotion, uh, it's very hard to talk about in part because it's inexplainable and explaining it wouldn't help even if I tried. Uh, but you're right, when I show up in my Dharma hall or at my meditation center for our retreats, our 10-day retreats or five-day retreats, I, I feel a, a falling away of my other identities for that time. And it is, it is like being hatless in some way because the only thing that I'm involved with in that moment or in those moments is my own being in relationship to all of being. And that has no label or name. And so Methodist doesn't matter. Frankly, Buddhist doesn't matter in that space. Uh, it It has no need for a label. And so talking about it is very difficult because we love labels. Meditate for social justice. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that what meta is? I mean, at, at the end of every sitting in, in my tradition, in my practice, you, you spend you know a, a series of minutes simply um, exiting the traditional practice, which is sensation, observation, and seeing where that takes you, what that shows you, what you can notice, and putting what you have garnered from that time out into the world so that your enlightenment, however small or, uh, you know, misunderstood it could be, will be shared with all beings, um, both living and not living. And so Meta is saying, you know, may all beings be happy. May all beings living and not living uh, come out of their suffering. And I think that that's what you're talking about. That's meditating for social justice because true meditation, the moments when I've experienced it, and and I'm sure they're far and few between, um, true meditation is not just sitting and being alone in a room in the dark, just being quiet. It's having the opportunity to watch yourself and your own reactions in such a way that the space between what you would have done and what you actually do is changed or shifted in some way. And then all of a sudden, you can act from a different space, right? Like true meditation always leads to action, I think, but it will lead to a new kind of action. And that's what meditation for social justice actually will be. Because we all have reactions. I hate racism, even though I participate in it, right? Like I can get on Facebook and rant and rage against things. And, but if I'm meditating, I'm wondering and seeing in myself and wondering about like, what is my reaction when I'm actually the one who is called out or when I encounter something that is ugly and brutal, where is my 
energy coming from and where is it going? And is that the place that the world needs it? Yeah. Those are very different for me. No, I think that's, I think that's really good. I've been thinking for a while myself about the, um, the way, the way like you described with racism, um, you know, like I, we, but certainly I lead this divided life, like a divided self. I mean, all the time, all the time I feel um, antipathy towards things that I'm participating in, uh, whether it's racism or degradation of the environment or, you know, whatever. Um, and I feel like some of that antipathy and some of that division is built into our institutions, you know, like, um, you know, clergy folks have a pension plan that is rooted in an equity market that makes, you know, makes annual returns by perpetuating the things that clergy people stand in pulpits and tell the market to stop doing. So, you know, that's difficult. (laughs) At the very least. (laughs) Um, And, and wondering, you know, I'm still, I'm still really just in a stage of curiosity, but, but wondering, um, what does it mean to build enough connective tissue between my spirit and my physical body so that my physical body is acting out of the deepest intentions of my spirit? Yeah. And I'm guessing is not participating in those things. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And sometimes that is kind of scary because then sometimes I don't, you know, I don't know how you, like, how do you play the game without participating in the aspects of the game? Right. Yeah. I mean, is, you know, what's that, what does that look like? Um, So much of it seems to be that we're in games we didn't sign up for and don't know that we're playing. And so to connect your body and your spirit in the way you're describing means to, to know and at least begin to understand that they're disconnected. Mm-hmm. And that's why I find sitting so helpful because it is the physical and literal practice of reconnecting your spirit and your body using yeah. your breath or using your body sensations to be like, whoa, I, I just had, I'm, all I'm doing is sitting here. I'm sitting in the dark with a hundred other people who are also quiet. I haven't talked to them and I'm having a reaction to the woman on my right who is in her own space, in her own brain, just sitting there, and I am hating her. I am hating the way she breathes. I'm hating the fact that she has so many pillows. I'm hating the way she walks up to the assistant teacher during the question and answer time. I'm having all of these reactions, and then having to sit there and see yourself as a person who hates, and as a person who hates for what reasons, And then to feel what hate feels like Mm -hmm. and to be like, oh, for me, hate is like an agitation in my chest and sweaty armpits and a a tight forehead. And then to sit longer with that and to be like, when did I hate somebody like this before? And then like to continually ask the questions and to notice and then to begin to like see how they all fit together and how they fit together in ways that are like, puzzle pieces that have been jammed together instead of the ones that naturally fit. Um, it's, 
it's hard work and it translates. It like translates cosmically for me because yeah. I, I have that experience of that woman. This is, you know, completely based in reality, by the way, this has happened to me so many times. <laughs> this is not a hypothetical. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, you have this reaction to this woman or this person and you think these things and then you begin to see where I do that other places. Mm -hmm. And, Oh, I, I, that's not, not to judge, but that doesn't feel like the kind of, that doesn't feel like bringing people out of suffering. That doesn't feel like bringing me out of suffering. Okay. So what do I do with that? Where, where do I need to head now? And that's, that I think is exactly what you're describing. It takes a lot of, it takes, it takes security to go through that process that you just described. Security you know, of the kind. Like, or, or, a, or great, you know, self, self-graciousness, self-forgiveness to, yeah, to be able to know. Well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it might take self-graciousness. I think that might be a second step actually. Um, self-graciousness comes because the container's been set in which you just sit down, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I can only ever give thanks for any security or graciousness I have that has come out of sitting because somebody told me, you're going to sit here. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really good. I, that, and that makes sense. It's almost like uh, graciousness, maybe self-graciousness is just what you end up having to do to survive sitting there. Absolutely, because otherwise you end up in the scenario I was in last summer when I went on a 10-day retreat, and uh, I simply had the country song, uh, you, She Thinks My Tractor is Sexy, stuck in my head for two days. And that's what happened to me. And I would have done anything. I would have gained any insight. I would have suffered any physical pain to make that song stop. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's really funny. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, we're such, we're just interesting. People are interesting. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'll never and forget it. I thought yeah. for a moment, there, there were some moments that week, that 10 days when I thought, it's entirely possible that the work that I'm about for these 10 days is simply allowing this song to be in me the whole time and not act insane or be caused to become insane by it. And that is enough training for the world maybe. Like mm -hmm. if I can have stuff come at me over and over and over again against my will to, to my suffering, however small or large, and not react to it, well, gosh. That's worth it. Man, Kenny Chesney would be so happy to know that one of his songs <laughs> has, like been an, has been an instrument in enlightenment like this. It, it is good. It's a really, it's actually a really funny song. I have no it idea is. why it arrived, but it did. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, that makes sense. I mean, if we can... Um, yeah, if if all of the stories can, we can kind of hold like that. Even, I wonder, even if like the church story, what if yeah. the church story is just like a song that gets stuck in our head and we can kind of have like a little sense of humor about it and, you know, 
oh, church, church, <laughs> you know, like. Well, it does get back to this conversation about moving in spaces that feel like not home or that might not be naturally home for you. I, I do think that these kinds of conversations and practices allow us to hold them so much more loosely. I mean, one of the biggest dangers and the most violent aggressions that we have as human beings is this idea of dividing ourselves into categories and tribes and then holding, like planting our flag and saying, I'm this, not that over and over again. And so if we can just like, gently laugh at that and say, well, in fact, like, aren't we just a little precious? And, um, well, it, you know, ugh, it's not perfect. Uh, but here we are and here's what we're doing. Maybe we can do it better next time. I think it, it breaks up the calcification of that enough to free us and then we can hold it so much more loosely and, and leave it then when we need to and not feel trapped by it, right? Like so many folks in my circles have been held hostage by the institutions that they've been born into or trained into. You know, my, my um, ex-evangelical friends who are still traumatized and experiencing the harm of some of their experiences in the evangelical church, conservative evangelical church, uh, and it's, it's that, that rigidity of you're in or you're out, you're this or you're that, that really harms people. And when I watch them loosen themselves from that and just be able to look and say, wow, that was not great or that was not perfect, but there were some beautiful things in it too that I want to draw forward. It just takes that sense of you must be aligned. You have to have allegiance all the time and your allegiance is permanent, right? It's a life sentence. Um, it takes that and it just loosens it up. It's why over and over again, I say, I'm really grateful that God called me in, into being a clergy person in the United Methodist Church. I'm grateful for that. But if God, the creator of the universe, could help me discern that calling into a thing and a place, then it is entirely possible that very soon, I might be called out of it. And that is just as legitimate a vocational call as it is the call in. And so to be able to hold that with that looseness and that sort of grace when I can is just absolutely a relief. It's such a relief to be able to say in or out are both legitimate and they're all, everything is temporary, everything changes, and that may or may not include my identity there. And you might be uh, one of the only people that I know that I feel like your articulation of your practice is very sound and you're doing this exciting work out in the world and they aren't like they, it seems like you've kind of figured out the transmission between those two things or you're comfortable with the transmission between those two behaviors. And I meet a lot of people who really excel in one, you know, sort of like, I play jazz piano, but not classical, or I play classical piano, but not jazz piano. Um, and not very often is there somebody who's like, yeah, I'm proficient at both. Um, yeah, I just, I wonder, does that, 
the more, especially the more now that you're kind of swimming in the world of organizers, um, like is, is what you just described to me, does that seem more commonplace in that world? Or do you also feel like an outlier in the world of organizers? Wow, I don't even know how to judge that in other people um, because my own process is so internal. Um, and I, so I assume other people's is. What I see is that in the organizing world, because we're working across so many boundaries that the are, are you know, typical, uh, you know, religious boundaries and economic boundaries, uh, racial boundaries, that there are many ways of practice. The unifying thing I see in organizing is that for the most part, everyone wants to be caring for the world and for themselves in these ways. And we are very bad at it. That we tend to point outward because we want to change things. We want to be effective. We want the world to be better. That's why we organize. And in the best days, it's why we're the church. But we get so focused on the outcome that we forget about the process. Um, and part of our process is not just relationship and development of community and the organizing cycle. It's also this internal presence that keeps you alive in the midst of what is potentially life-threatening work for some of us. Those folks whose lives are on the line if the thing isn't fixed. Um, but we're very bad at returning to the home of our own bodies and our own spirits and saying, I need to take this opportunity to reflect. Even though it's a natural part of the organizing cycle, celebration and evaluation is part, it's an equal part of the cycle alongside research and listening and action. But we tend to skip that part. And for me, meditative or contemplative presence is not an addition. It is an essential DNA component of the work. And I couldn't survive this. I, I have not survived other versions of this. I quit the domestic violence movement because I was burned out because I was spiritually dying uh, in my early 20s. But I cannot continue to organize for housing justice in the way that I do if I'm not returning to my own reactivity, my own ego, my own sense of why this is right and wrong in the world and, and interrogating that really carefully by sitting down and just shutting up. And so I don't know how people don't do it, but I, I know that I know that not all of us can. Yeah, that's really well put. Julia, thank you. You're welcome. It's always um, good to talk to you, Josh. It's good to talk to you too.